This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracuse, the man with the complaints. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, July 6th, 2012. This is episode number 75. I'd like to say thanks very much to our sponsors, Zoomf, Sifter Stickers, and Dark Sky. We would also like to thank InfiniteKind.com, the makers of SyncSpace, which is a shared Zoomable writeboard for your iPad and the web. They're the ones that made the bandwidth for this show possible. So thanks very much to them, InfiniteKind.com. How are you, John Syracuse? You'll, you'll just be able to take that out in post, right? Yeah, I'll Don't take it all up? out in post. Let me start streaming and send a tweet. Magic air conditioner removal filter. Oh, yeah. There we go. We got everything you need right here. Fish, plankton, sea greens from the sea. You have to Google that. What does that mean? Fish, planktons. What are you talking about? I like it, but where are you going with it? All right, I'll get it to you in a moment. All right. Is it in the show notes? No, it's not part of the show. It's it's just you said. Oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Fish, and plankton, Fish, plankton and sea, sea greens, and protein and from the protein sea. I was close. It's all here. Fish and plankton and sea greens. And protein from the sea. Fish and plankton and sea greens and protein from the sea. (laughs) (laughs) All right, good. All right. (laughs) So how's everything going for you? You all right? Yeah, it's going all right. I guess I I don't know if we'll have time for me to uh, moan about my article writing, but we'll save that if we have any... Well, people, well, I, th- I mean, can we, do, can we do some of that now? Because people are very concerned about you and your article. Famously, for those who somehow, if you're listening to the show and you don't know this, John Syracuse famously writes an excellent, uh, in-depth, three, four hundred page uh, review, if you can call it a review, of Mac OS X when a new release comes out. And you've been doing this. When was your first one? What was the first one you did? Uh, developer preview two, Mac OS 10 DP two in 1999, maybe around then. So you've been doing this for quite a long time. And every year Apple would announce the operating system coming out. You would get an early copy of it and you'd begin writing as they change things. You then change your article. And here we are now with Apple having announced a July ship date. We assume it's going to be the very end of July. And you are stressing because you are trying to get this this article written. But this is not your full-time job. You work at a, an undisclosed company in an undisclosed location in the Northeast uh, United States, somewhere on the, the Northeastern seaboard. And this is not your full-time job. And yet, you still make time for it and to do the show. So we thank you for that. But people are very concerned. They want, they want this article. I'm very concerned, too. Yeah, I would be. Still no release date announced. You think it would be nice when they say the release date's going to be July, that when July rolls around, assuming the OS is not released on the first day of the month, they could at least take the time to say, we're, now that we're into July, finally we can nail down the release date and announce 
that uh, Mountain Lion will be available on July, and then you insert a number there. That's But Apple has not yet done that. Uh, so I'm just still frantically working, stressing, waiting to see when they will actually seed the GM build so that I can check to see that all the stuff I've written is actually true about the thing that people are going to buy. Because right now, of course, I've, I'm using the latest available developer preview, but that is not what's going to ship to customers. Right. So there's some guesswork involved in, oh, and God, if they change, if they like do something they did last year, like change, they changed the color of the scroll bars last year and like the second to last build. And I had to redo all of my screenshots that had scroll bars in them. If they do something like that this time, I'm just going to die because I cannot take all those screenshots again. It's just so difficult to arrange them to have, you know, representative, but non-personally uh, identifying information in all the screenshots. Uh, Couldn't, uh, why can't you just, I know we talked about this, but for people who are new, why can't you just do all the screenshots last? It takes forever. You don't, it just takes so long to do those screenshots. Like you have to arrange things in a certain way to have, to, to show what it is that you want to show, to have information, there, especially if it's like an email client or an IM client. I mean, you can, you, you know, you have to, you have to either fake up scenarios or have real data that shows what you want to show in a way that doesn't, you're not revealing like your actual emails and your actual address book and piece of, people's personal information and stuff like that. Uh, and you do not want to do, uh, I don't want to do that thing where you black out or blur personal information in screenshots because that is super ghetto. And I want to avoid that at all costs. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done that. Maybe, maybe I don't, I don't think I've ever done it. If someone knows of a time when I had to blur or black out something in a Mac OS X screenshot, it must have been, you know, a decade ago because I don't remember it at all. So I do not want that. Uh, and then the added complication here. And that's, by the way, that's your preference. I think the audience would be relatively forgiving of that if you did it. No, it's no good. It's no good. I appreciate that, by the way. Yeah, because who wants to look at that? Like, it was, it's just, it's like, couldn't you, couldn't you find a way to take a screenshot that didn't have information that you know you control that screenshot it's not like it's taken for in an environment that you don't control you could you get to make the screenshot to put in your review so just take one that has information that you don't mind you know put john doe information to but johnny appleseed like apple does in its stuff you know uh, so anyway I'll, I'll i think i'll talk more about the writing process once it's actually done i am now in the the phase where i am now for the first time going back through and reading what it is that i've written hoping that what I've produced is not, you know, tens of thousands of words of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. So far, so good. <laughs> uh, but when I'm when I'm done with this process, I'm what I'm aiming for is by the end of this week, I want to have something that worst case scenario I could submit to ours for editing uh, on Monday. But that doesn't mean I'm done because there are whole sections that I've had to omit due to time constraints. Thinking like, okay, maybe. Maybe next week they'll announce a release date and then I'll know, okay, I, now I know I have this number of days to do stuff. So do I have a time to add a section on this? There's a, you know, a couple topics that I thought I could, it would be neat to have sections on them. But if I don't fit them in, that, that's okay. Uh, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not, I don't need to put the sections in because I don't feel like it's long enough. It's similar length to the last view already. Uh, it's just that there are some things that I wanted to talk about that are pretty esoteric, but might be fun to put in. So. And you treat this as a, as a journalist would. In other words, this is going to be a completed piece. This isn't something that you will say, well, I'll add that section later. 
you want this to be complete. You want this to be an, a, a standalone thing. And maybe if there's a correction or something, you, you, uh, you wouldn't want to have to fix it, but you would be willing to go back in and fix it. But you don't want to make this a work in progress. You want to complete this. You put it out there with the intent that people will receive it and, and read it as it is, as it stands. Yeah, there are, there's always a flurry of changes like the hour it's released and then the day it's released and maybe a couple more the next day. I mean, you know, typo corrections, factual corrections, things that uh, that I miss that are actually different in the GM than in all the builds that I use. And that's the beauty of the web is that for that first day or two that it's out there, I can go back and fix those. Uh, but even... You know, while doing this review, I'm I'm making I'm still making corrections to articles I wrote four or five years ago because someone will write in and say, "Hey, in this review, you put this release date as 2006, but it's actually 2007." Like I just did one of those like a couple of weeks ago on on an article from five years ago. So I I take pretty seriously the idea that I want these articles to be factually correct uh, and also useful reference for people uh, back in time. Of course, the Ars Technica's recent redesign has thrown a monkey wrench into that because. I'm always pushing the limits of whatever their website and their CMS can support in terms of like, uh, you know, image rollovers and enlargements and movies and embedded audio and stuff like that. And every time they, they do a redesign, it tends to break all that stuff. So a lot of my old articles are broken or badly formatted or both. Uh, and I do have to go back and fix those. Uh, some some part of it needs to wait for support from the current publishing system. But other parts of it is just a matter of me going back and, and going through them all and fixing them. That is tremendously time-consuming, and I'm prioritizing work on the new article before that. So I apologize for anyone who clicks on a link in what I'm about to publish and goes back to an old review that doesn't look as good as it used to. Uh, I, I know that's the case, and I, you know I'm, I'm working on it. Boy, that was an unscheduled follow-up item. So there you go. There's an update on, on my progress. Thank you. At the, end, at the end of the writing, I may actually make a post to my neglected blog on tumblr where i will lay out all the statistics for the article but it's not done yet so i can't do that all right that's the pre-follow-up now the actual follow-up last show we talked about products electronic products and how they age and how they hold up over time uh this first piece of follow-up was about that it's from alex chan he uh, provided a link to Remy Lebesque, I hope I got that right. Remy Lebesque's iPhone, which he has put up at, at a, a Frog Design website. I guess he's a Frog Design employee. And it shows his first generation iPhone and what it looks like after, what is it, five years of use? Uh, it's called Age to Perfection. Do you have that URL up? I do. What do you think of that, that picture of that iPhone? Is that, is that attractive to you? Is that cool looking or does it just look like it needs to be replaced? <laughs> You know, there's there's two parts of this. I mean, there are people you've heard in web design for a while, and I think it's long gone now. But there was something called the weathered, worn look, and it's the same thing. If you if you notice in the pictures uh, that this uh, gentleman's jeans are a little frayed at the pocket, obviously jeans are a really good example of something that once in a while the style will come back where the jeans look incredibly new and dark, but. The overall style of jeans over the years has been to have them look worn. Technology, though, most people who have technology, like if your computer looks beat up and worn, they think, What's, why can't you take care of your stuff? But since radio is a the theater of the mind, right, we have to describe this for people. Imagine you're the first generation iPhone. It has a little black bar on the bottom and the 
aluminum, shiny, usually shiny aluminum back. This thing is really, really worn. I mean, it's scuffed. It's got scratches. It. I think personally, I think this is a testament to a device that's held up well, that's lasted really, really a long time. And I would say, no, this doesn't need to be replaced. This is like a, a, a war veteran, this thing. This is like a badge of honor. This guy's had it for this eight gig iPhone, generation one iPhone forever. I think it looks great. I'd be proud to carry something like that. Commitment, looks, commitment to his purchase, for sure. It looks pretty good. But uh, again, it gets back to what we discussed last time, that Apple's products are seem to be designed and presented uh, in a way that they look best when they're new and that they're designed to stay looking new for a long time. And Apple's design direction has been to make its products so that's more and more true. So that, you know, we they want their products to look new ever longer. So anything they can do to preserve the original look of their products as designed, they will do. Uh, I'm not sure how much thought anyone who designed the original iPhone had for what it would look like five years later after that kind of scuffing. Uh, and the, the back of the original iPhone was actually, it wasn't like shiny mirror finish like the uh, like the back of the original iPod. It's, it was actually kind of a matte gray. And so it looks like a lot of it has rubbed off or whatever. But I, I, it would be, I would love, again, one of these things you'd love to be able to pick Apple's minds about, to get someone from Apple's design department and say, hey, do you guys, when you're picking materials, do you like put it into one of those aging machines that like rubs it and sprays it with water and changes, you know, and, and like artificially ages it at an accelerated rate just to see what it's going to look like after five years of use? Or do you never do that? Do you just wonder about how good does it look when it's new and how long will it be able to keep that look? Uh, I, my theory is that they do not take these things and see and, and pick materials based on how they'll age. I think they pick materials based on how little they will age and how much they'll maintain their original look. Uh, Dan rocks Dan with two A's. So I'm sorry if that, that is actually not pronounced. Dan, uh, sent me a link to the grid compass, which was, uh, one of the first laptops that had a magnesium, uh, outer case on it. And there's a video, uh, clip uh, that I linked to on YouTube. That's from the documentary objectified, which I saw, but I guess I don't remember this part. Uh, and it has one of the co-founders of IDEO, which is a design firm talking about, the design of the the original grid compass, which is a big, massive, giant, you know, what laptops used to look like when they were the first laptops. But he talks specifically about how the material age over time and how he designed it so that you would get more affectionate towards it over time. So it's another example of that same theme. Uh, and that objectified documentary is actually great. It's from the same people. I think it's from the same people who made the Helvetica documentary. Is that the case? Do you know? I don't know, but I, I it would make sense. It feels the same. Yeah, so I recommend both of those. Um... Shiro Wild sent me a correction when we were talking about uh, Microsoft manufacturing hardware. I mentioned that Microsoft's, uh, the, the, Microsoft made the Xbox, and I said that they contracted Foxconn to make that. I was misremembering the wrong F company. It was actually Flextronics that uh, Microsoft contracted to make the Xbox, the Xbox 360, and the Zoom. Bad brain hashing there. <laughs> talked about lemons on the last show that how uh, electronics as they get more complicated uh and are assembled of uh, more integrated components and fewer discrete components that can be replaced separately that your chances of getting a lemon increase because if any little piece is wrong or if the assembly process is so complicated that it wasn't assembled right you're never going to be able to disassemble it uh, disassemble it and reassemble it to make it better 
Uh, and during that conversation, I was you know, comparing it to cars, uh, you know, where the, the term lemon comes from, I think. I said, how you, you know, how you don't want uh, a car that was made on a Friday when the people who were assembling the car, all their minds are on the weekend. They weren't really paying attention as they did their job. So the car is not assembled quite right. And you get a car that is designed perfectly well, but it wasn't just put together in the right way. And you're never able to fix that because you can't disassemble the car to its pieces and reassemble it. Uh, so uh, someone who doesn't want their name right on the air uh, wrote me in to say that in Germany, uh, car, they have the phrase, I'm going to try this in German, let's see, Monteswagen, which means Monday car. And it's the same type of theory that, that the workers are still slightly drunk or hungover from the weekend. So the cars assembled on Monday aren't great either. So his question is, so there are really only three days in the week that produce drivable cars? Uh, or is Monday worse than Friday? Uh, I think this is a well-known problem in manufacturing industries. But I think with uh, with the shifts, I think they have overlapping shifts and stuff like that. I don't think it's a problem anymore. I think that it's been addressed. But yes, there was a time. Apparently, there was it was enough of a problem that there's actually a word for it in in, uh, in German. But I think it, there's a word for everything in German because they just take other words and stick them together into one giant word. That's my understanding of the language. Please send just, all your e- email just, corrections to Dan. Yeah, it's just compound words. Yeah. Uh, and here's a little piece of follow-up from me regarding the last person whose name I couldn't read on the air. It seems like a lot of the feedback, and this is for you, Dan, it seems like a lot of the feedback I'm getting lately has... The, the privacy mark is private. Did you change the default on the feedback form? So use the default to public and now it defaults to private and people are just leaving it there? Because I, I, I yeah, can't it's, it's all Yeah, ba- it's all backwards. So if it says private, it's actually public. And this is, this is uh, I replaced the forms. We were using a third party and I replaced them with a, a built-in thing. And Marco immediately pointed out, Marco, host of Build and Analyze, he says, Dan, all the ones that are private are actually public. And, all, and what it turned out was that I had... Uh, omitted an exclamation point, or as you would say, a bang from one of the variables that is being sent in the email. It's being collected correctly. It's being stored correctly, but I'm not outputting that one thing in. And it's ready for the new deploy. I just need to deploy it. And I I do that on weekends. So if it says private, it's actually public. Did he mention that on his show? I think I'm behind on. He did not mention it on the show. He mentioned it privately to me within seconds of the change happening. Yeah, I just noticed it when I was going through there. So I apologize for people. There was a whole bunch of feedback that I was going to put in the follow-up section, but then I kept, you know, I kept looking at the public. Yes, I, I meant, was, I, I meant to send out a form letter about that and I, I have failed you. All right. Well, that's okay. We're trying to keep today's show tight anyway. Yeah. So, so it's, it, that was an intentional thing so that we would be able to have a shorter show. Absolutely not. a just, a. you love it when a, a plan bug. comes together. Don't you? Yeah, I sure do. All right. So two short topics here. <laughs> and whenever we get the most feedback we get, especially on Twitter, is whenever you say it'll be a short show, it's a record length show. <laughs> but we're going to do it this time because you have you have a schedule that you've got to keep to. That's but we start early. we started 30 minutes early. So it, and, there's still yeah, the potential for a two hour show. Now we're going to get you out of here on time. All right. All right. It's going to happen. OK. And <laughs> do it. We're already we're already into the topics. It's, we're 20. It's 18, but we're, yeah, I mean, 18 minutes in 18 minutes in. We're already ahead of schedule. Do you want to do our, our spurs, uh, first Spurst font sponsor? I can't speak. I'm so excited about it. Well, it's a good thing that you don't have to read it, huh? <laughs> I, yeah, I guess it is. Go do you want to it. do it? Okay. It, the first one, it's Zoomf. Z-O-O-M-P-F. They build software to help website creators find and fix performance problems that are slowing down their sites. So you'd think, well, why do we have to care about this? We live in the world 
where bandwidth, you know, you have a Fios connection, your house, you don't care. The difference between a site that's 30K and 300K to you, that's, who cares? You eat 300K for breakfast. Well, I'll tell you why. Because faster sites have better, more engaged users, increased call to action conversion rates. They have better Google rankings and overall a better and more improved user experience. And it's especially important when you're providing content to mobile users. Zoom checks your website against, they have 400 performance best practices. So it'll find, it'll look at server issues like compression, caching, HTTP connections. They'll look at design issues like images that are too big, uh, unused styles, structures, and slow page rendering. And there's more. I mean, they, they focus on the mobile issues, HTML problems, even things that are specific to certain kinds of browsers. So they ran a scan on Instapaper. They found a ton of problems there. Well, actually, really just one. They found a ton on 5x5, five five, but they, they will tell you what these are for free. You just go to zoomf.com slash free. And if you find that you like this service, because it'll tell you, it'll say, here's the problem. Here's how you fix it. Here's another problem. Here's how you fix it. And they'll give you code snippets, config snippets to tell you how to fix it. If you like it, you want 20% off on all of their, uh, for a lifetime discount, 20% as long as you keep the account. You go to zoomf.com slash 5x5, Z-O-O-M-P-F dot com slash 5x5, and that'll get you the 20% off. Again, you can go to zoomf.com slash free and try it out for free. See if you like it. Thanks very much to them uh, for making the show possible. My two cents on these kind of tools is that uh, a lot of nerds will hear about this or check the website and go, well, I already know about all these things. I know that you're you know, supposed to put all your CSS into one file so you don't make a million HTTP requests. I know about asynchronous JavaScript. I know about you know, good image compression and stuff like that. Like, even if you know everything that this tool is checking for, the value is not in the, necessarily in the knowledge. Like, oh, I didn't even know you should do this with your images to make them smaller. <laughs> it's because it's an automated tool right. that you can use to constantly check yourself against backsliding. And if you don't have automated tool or process for anything, for checking HTML validity, for you know, just any part of website design, uh, you know, it's like, it's like continuous integration for your website. You want a tool that will just constantly run, even if you're a small organization with two people in it, or even just doing it yourself. You want a tool that will constantly run and tell you, have I added any regressions? Have I done any dumb things? Like, okay, this site is clean and it has everything. It, it, it passes all these requirements for best practices for speed. But is it getting worse over time? Uh, and just knowing the correct thing to do doesn't mean that you're not going to slowly accrue uh, mistakes over time. And this is, you know humongously true in a big company where you have like 50 developers all working at once you need an automated tool to tell you what's going on and who's you know even if every individual developer thinks they know all these rules there's no way they will be vigilant enough in their individual work to make sure they don't add uh something in there so i i heartily endorse automated tools for enforcing best practices and programming there you go website design all All right. right topic time one of two yes I want to talk a little bit about the 7-inch iPad or the 8-inch iPad or the iPad Nano or whatever you want to call the, the iPad. The iPad is, Junior. The iPad yeah. Junior. You're going to go with Junior? Yes. Yeah. God, that was such a mistake with the PC Junior. And I guess it's like no one ever, like Junior, no one ever wants to be thought of as Junior. Like, I don't think that would fly even today. Maybe for a kid's thing, but it's, <laughs> no one wants to have the Junior, right? Nano sounds cool. The iPod Nano, Nano is cool. It's like nano machines, nanobots. That's the future. It's awesome. And a lot of people don't know what nano means, so that works well. Junior, everybody knows what that means, and it's not bad, not good. Uh, so I think uh, it's catchy. This topic has come up again because of 
you know, the, the Google 7-inch Nexus tablet that we talked about in the last show. And, of course, the Kindle Fire is a similar size. And forever people have been saying Apple needs to make a smaller tablet. Apple has been saying we think the current size is the correct size for a tablet. Uh, we don't think that that small size is appropriate. I think Steve Jobs made a comment about having to file down the tips of your fingers to be able to use it because it would just be too small. And, right. you know, uh, <laughs> but the noise is gathering for a seven inch tablet amongst, uh, you know, the, the industry observers who say Apple really has to make a seven inch now, which, you know, that doesn't mean anything because this is, said the same thing about Apple making a netbook. And we saw how that turned out. Apple said no. And that turned out to be the right decision. Uh, but now we're getting noise from the typical places that you start to get noise when it seems like Apple might actually be doing this. For a long time, we've had rumors that Apple is testing a smaller iPad, but that doesn't mean that they're going to make it. Maybe they wanted to see what it's like. What can you do with a 7-inch thing? Does it feel okay? You know, Maybe they were deciding internally to revisit that idea, but it doesn't mean they're going to ship anything. Uh, and Marco, I think, a, a couple weeks ago, made a comment that if Apple is making a 7-inch tablet, uh, we would have heard, we would have had leaks from the supply chain by now. And then Gruber responded by posting a link to one such uh, rumor, fake, probably, you know, one of those like Far Eastern suppliers shows spy screenshots that reveal blurry pictures of a probably fake piece of hardware. Well, you know, we've got one of those. And uh, Gruber linked to it. It's from this website called Zugu, Z O O G U E. I linked to it in the show notes. <laughs> it shows something that looks like it could be a seven inches iPad case complete with the same new looking dock connector on the bottom that the other that the iPhone five fake rumor totally unsubstantiated spy shots showed uh, Gruber in fact updated later updated his link to this saying that he's gotten further reports that this is probably a fake uh, but if you just want to see what a fake might look like and you want to see some, a mock-up or you know something like that you can take a look at this link it doesn't look that exciting it looks like you know, what, what does it look like? It's a big rectangle of, of aluminum or something with an Apple logo on the back and it says iPad and it's got a little hole for the camera and the, and the antennas and and there you have it, right? Uh, but where this really starts to heat up is now the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, two sources not known for their massive rumor mongering, have both published stories uh, that Gruber also linked to that says Apple's making one of these. The Wall Street Journal's article was Apple preps for a smaller tablet. And the Bloomberg one, it says Apple said to plan smaller iPad to vie with Google Nexus. Uh, I think the Wall Street Journal one, you might have to click through a Google search to, to get to because it's behind a paywall. But the Bloomberg one, you can get right to. And, you know, the, the, that's when these two publications say something, say Apple is going to do something. Uh, usually that cranks up the probability substantially. Uh and so the deal with the 7-inch iPad, aside from Apple's reservations that this is not the right size for this device, or we tried it and we didn't like it, uh, the question has always been, are, say, so say Apple decides that this size is now viable, what does that mean for software developers? What, what runs on this thing? We all assume that it will run iPad applications and not iPhone applications. But In other iPad, words, is, is this really just a big iPhone or is it an iPad truly? Yeah, and I, I think most people agree that it would have to run iPad apps because you wouldn't want a phone app blown up onto a, uh, it's actually, it's not 7-inch, it's 7.85-inch screen. You wouldn't, you know, that's that's too big for a phone app. But there was a concern uh, uh, among a lot of people, including me, is like, what? well, if you take the current, you know, look at your current iPad, take that image and squish it down so it's 7.85 inches diagonal, uh, keeping the same aspect ratio. Does that make all the controls too small? Because uh, the, the the iOS human interface guidelines say, this is a, a quote from a thing I linked in the, the show notes, uh, 
The screen size of iOS-based devices might vary, but the average size of a fingertip does not. Regardless of the device your app runs on, follow these guidelines to ensure that people can comfortably use your app. Give tappable elements in your application a target area of about 44 by 44 points. And they say points and not pixels, because points are the abstract unit of measurement that Apple uses in its APIs for showing things on screen. And a point uh, is always the same size in theory. A pixel is not the same as a point, because on a retina device, for every one point in length, there are two pixels in length. Uh, So they don't use pixels because that would quickly get very confusing with a retina versus non-retina. So they just go with points. Uh, So it's 44 points high. That would be 88 pixels high on any Retina iOS device. And that's their minimum size. For Look, if someone's got a tap thing with a finger, it's got to be 44 by 44 points. Uh, and Joel Bernstein uh, did the math on this. Again, Gruber linked to this. Uh, and he just did the multiplication. So if we assume that the, the 7.85-inch iPad screen keeps the same 1024 by 768 point screen, not 1024 by 768 pixel. Could be pixel, could be point. But anyway, just sticking with points. On some devices, one point is one pixel. Others, it's one point is two pixels. But if it keeps that same, uh, it's hard to say resolution. It's so hard to talk about this now because it's not resolution unless it's... All right, anyway. If it keeps the same screen resolution in points as the current iPad, but merely makes everything smaller, uh, it turns out that a 44-point target on a 7.85-inch iPad screen would be the, exactly the same size as a 44-point target on the iPhone. That's about 0.27 inches. And what that means is the current iPad, on the current iPad, a 44-point by 44-point button on the current iPad is actually larger than Apple recommends for the minimum size. Uh, so, it, it you know, as this article by Joel Bernstein says, it's either... An amazing coincidence or amazing forethought on Apple's point that like the math comes out so that it is almost identically sized. Uh, you know, a 7.85 inch iPad, uh, the minimum size button is almost exactly the same size as it is on an iPhone. Uh, now, since the since the scale of the iPad is a little bit bigger, it means that people designing current iPad applications could have been cheating and saying, OK, well, I know Apple says everything's got to be 44 by 44 points minimum. But what I find that when I make it, you know, 38 by 38 points on this 10-inch iPad, it works fine. And it probably does because maybe 38 by 38 points is the same size as 44 by 44 points on, on an iPhone, and they get away with it. But once that app is shrunk down to a 7.85-inch screen, suddenly that's going to be an uncomfortable tap target. Uh, so I'm actually getting kind of excited about a smaller iPad. Now, <laughs> I, was, I was so concerned about it before, and I was always just too lazy to do the multiplication and division to find out that it's going to work fine in terms of sizes, at least for Apple's apps, because Apple is very good about keep following its own guidelines to touch targets. I've used a lot of iOS applications, both on the phone and on the iPad, where the touch targets are just too small. They're just too darn small. Like, they're not following Apple's guidelines. They are not 44 points high, not even close. Uh, and those are going to get even worse on a 7-inch. But those should be fixed uh, on, on the current iPad or on the current phone anyway. Uh, so I, I think this could work. Uh, as far as applications are concerned, there wouldn't be a new version of your software. It would just be the iPad version displayed slightly smaller. If you had been following Apple's guidelines like a good developer, you would be fine. The usability would not be any worse than the iPhone. If you were not following Apple's guidelines, this will further punish you by making your application uh, even less nice to use. Uh, so I'm ready for a small iPad. What about you, Dan? I would love one. I actually bought the uh, the Nexus 7 
because I, on the one hand, I want to learn what's going on in the, in the Android space. We talk about Android a lot, but the last time that I actively used Android was back when I got that HTC Incredible phone before the iPhone hit Verizon because I needed to be on Verizon because I make phone calls. And that's a long, 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 long time ago. So I really wanted to see what was going on. I also really wanted to see what a 7-inch tablet would be like. So killing those two birds with one stone, I'm looking forward to trying this out. But absolutely, yes, I think a 7-inch uh, iPad or iPad Junior, as you say, would be perfect. I think it would be great. I think it would be a great device. There's a lot of people who are skeptical about it. And I really don't understand. I really don't understand the skepticism. Apple figures out how to make the resolution uh, perfect. The screen size is going to work. I mean, I, you know, the iPhone's way smaller, right? And I never complain about being able to use it. So I really don't understand that. Why, why would we need to have smaller fingers to use a 7-inch iPad when we're using iPhones that are much smaller? Well, you know, if you take that Steve Jobs quote literally, it was like everyone keeps saying seven inch, but seven point eight five inches is much closer to eight inches. Like, yeah. wouldn't it? Doesn't sound like it's the eight inch iPad, and it, it you know, it makes some difference. You round like, up, I, right? Yeah, as Gruber has pointed out a couple times on on uh, Daring Fireball, uh, the idea behind the exact measurements of this iPad is that you take the exact same screens as you're currently using on the iPhone, and you just uh, make them. You know, it, his. I don't know if it's his theory or if he knows this for a fact, but I have not researched it to be able to confirm that it is a fact. But what he says is that uh, LCD screens are printed out in sheets, and it's just a matter of cutting them to size. And so instead of cutting out a 3.5-inch screen for an iPhone, cut out a 7.85-inch screen, and that turns out to be exactly 1024 by 768 points. Uh, and so they keep the same manufacturing line humming along that they've had humming for years making the 3GS Uh I guess they could use the same screen manufacturing that they're using for the iPhone 4 and 4S and just cut that bigger as well. It's just a question of whether the screen that you end up with is a screen where one point equals one pixel or is it a screen where one point equals two pixels. Uh, they could go both ways on that. But it's, it's taking advantage of the current manufacturing to make something that they know they can make uh, that, and it turns out that it will not be a disruption for developers. Now, in the last show, we're talking about the Nexus 7. I was mentioning that now that I have uh, my own iPad, I find myself using it a lot more and using my iPod Touch less around the house. But the problem is, like, if I'm going from room to room or doing something else, I can't stick the iPad in my pocket and I can't, you know, squirrel it away on a high shelf somewhere where I know the kids won't mess with it because it's just too big. You need a, you need a bigger landing area to just put it down quickly. Uh, and one of the reasons I might be using the iPad 3 instead of my current generation iPod touches because iPad 3 is just so much faster and has more memory and it's just, you know, it's able to do more. So maybe if I had an iPod touch with iPhone 4S internals, I wouldn't be going to my iPad as often. But the other alternative is to have a seven inch tablet where it's not, I mean, maybe it wouldn't fit in my pockets. I don't have those big uh, Andy Anako tactical pants, <laughs> but maybe it would be easier to find a little piece of a shelf or a corner of a table or a nightstand or something to stick it on, uh, you know, when I wanted to put it down, then the big 10 inch, uh, iPad. So I'm intrigued by this device. And I, I mentioned that I could be uh, swayed by a seven inch form factor in the last show, but I also said that I wasn't going to buy the Nexus, but if Apple comes out with one of these, uh, I think one may find its way into our home. Do you think in, that they will continue way. the emphasis that they've been putting on the iPod touch? In other words, will this be a product that maybe they, I've, because people have been speculating that if or when they do this, that this will almost replace, not that it will be called an iPod Touch, 
but that this will replace the spot that the iPod Touch has in the lineup as far as these devices go. I really hope it doesn't, and I don't think it will. Like that's that's a good question to bring up: is why why is Apple making a seven-inch iPad? Is it because they believe that the form factor has merit, like the things we we're just talking about? Well, you know, sometimes you don't want something as big as an iPad, but you want something that's uh, that shows you more, that runs iPad application, that shows you more than an iPod Touch. Like, is that why? I don't think that's why. I think it's the reason Apple is going to make one is the same reason everyone else is making one, uh, and that's price point. Apple. You know, this has always been the expectation with the iOS devices that they would follow the same route with the iOS devices they did with the iPod. You come up with one model, it's called the iPod. You have a couple of storage options, and that's it. And then fast forward five or ten years—I don't know how long. Yeah, you know, fast forward, I guess, ten years. And what do you have? You have an entire range of iPods, from a dirt cheap iPod Shuffle all the way up to iPod Touch, is five hundred bucks. And at one point, they had like nice, even fifty-dollar increments in between between models and storage sizes, where you could just graph it out and say, look. However much money you have, Apple will find, take, you know, give us all your money and Apple will find a price point for you and you can, you know, buy whichever uh, device fits that. So I think Apple will flesh out its range. Uh, Apple simply can't sell a 10-inch iPad at this point for the same prices that, the you know, Google and, and Amazon can sell their 7 inches, Right. And there is quite a range between an iPod Touch price point and the the lowest level, uh, you know, ten inch iPad. So, the re- I think the reason that Apple's going to end up making a seven inch is because, as Tim Cook has often said, they don't want to leave a, a have a price umbrella where there's like, okay, well, Apple staked out the high end and the low end, but right in the middle, they're not selling any devices for two hundred bucks. You can't get a you can't get a tablet type device from Apple for two hundred bucks, right? Uh, well, now you can. Uh, well, Apple will make a seven-inch model, and Apple will sell it at a similar price to everyone else's seven-inch tablets. Uh, but Apple will make a profit on it, unlike apparently Google. And I'm not sure if Amazon's making a profit on on its uh, Kindle because they're not as open mouth. But Google opened its mouth and shoved its foot in it and said, "We're not even making any money at these things at 200 bucks." Well, I'm sure Apple can field a smaller iPad at 200 dollars and make plenty of money on it. Uh, and so that, that's why I think they, they will not remove the iPod Touch. I think they want an, the entire range of prices. They want you to be able to get an iOS device to get, you know, to start participating in this ecosystem. And no matter how much money you have, you only have a little bit of money, you get, get the lowest end iPod Touch. You have a little bit more, you maybe you can graduate to an iPad, but not the full size one. You got 200 bucks, you can get the little iPad. Okay, you got a little more, you can get the big iPad. And I've always been advocating for an iPad Pro, an even bigger iPad with actually even a higher resolution. Uh, like a whole you know, desk, like the, your whole desk is just an iPad. And you can set your drink on it, and it'll tell you if your drink is empty. Not a, not a Microsoft Surface, oh. but just some, something bigger. Like in the distant future, not today, not like Apple should sell a 15-inch iPad or ridiculous, but like the, the natural consequence of the continued evolution of iOS as it expands to be able to do more and more things. Like I think we mentioned once that people have been have designed and written games entirely on the iPad, including all the production of all the artwork and all the programming and everything, which sounds crazy and is kind of stunt-like, but eventually uh, it, that story will sound no more crazy than the people who said, hey, I used a personal computer to write a program for a personal computer because you used to have to use like a mini computer or something bigger to write a program for your smaller device or, or a big fancy computer, you know, a big, uh, more powerful dev system to make a game for your uh, console hardware. Uh, so I think uh, iOS will eventually expand to need larger form factors, and I think it'll be a range of products, just like the iPod, iPods, just like the uh, laptop range, and just like 
in the olden days, Apple's desktop line used to be. They went from little tiny desktops that were cheap to big honking desktops that were expensive. Of course, the desktop line has been dwindling. So all you've got is a tiny little turret of a Mac Mini, <laughs> a weird in-betweeny, this is a good enough computer for everybody, iMac, and then the old dinosaur Mac Pro that Apple has continued to neglect, but we hold out hope for. So that's the, that's the iPod Nano Mini Junior in betweeny. Right. Coming soon to a price point near you. <laughs> we think maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Or not. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, how, many, how many sponsors do we have today? We got, we got three. We right, do a well, second one? Is, yeah, this will be the time. Dark Sky. You got this app? I do not. I'll get you this. Oh, wait, no, that's the weather app. Yes, I've been hearing about that. Go ahead. I I'll get You don't school. have one? No, I, I do have a weather app, but I don't have this one. I almost downloaded it when everyone's been raving about it. But anyway, go on. I'll get, I'll get this one free. Uh, so first of all, the URL for this, if you want to support the show, best URL to use, 5by5.darkskyapp.com. Okay. It's a, it is a weather app. You're right. But it is designed to solve one problem, and that is what they call the rain problem. I guess that includes snow. But let's call it the rain problem. It is going to tell you when it will rain or snow down to the minute at your exact location. And it will present it to you alongside the most beautiful radar visualizations that you have ever seen. And I'm not just saying that. Uh, it, these, these are really great. I've been like a amateur meteorologist geek my whole life ever since I was a kid and we moved to Florida. My granddad uh, showed me how to track hurricanes. So I've always been into this kind of stuff. And so often, these apps are they're hideous, they're ugly. And what, is, what most people want to know, really, yeah, I mean, geeks like me, we want to know, you know, barometric pressure and stuff like that. But most people, including me, still, you just want to know, when is it going to rain? I saw some clouds. Should we cancel the trip to the park or whatever? This app tells you, and it will tell you down to the minute. So it'll say, light rain in four minutes. And it will actually, it, when it, when it, in four minutes, it will actually start to rain. It's really uncanny how good they are at doing this. And what's great, don't you love it, when you're, you're out somewhere with your kids or wherever, and you say, oh, it is going to start, this thing said it was going to start to rain. You can look and it'll show you the weather system, this beautiful animation. It'll show you and you'll be able to say, oh, you know what? It'll probably be done raining in about five minutes just based on how fast this cloud is moving. It's not that ugly, blotchy, yellow, green, and red garbage that you see in, in radar across the world. It's this beautiful animation. Anyway, you got to check this thing out. Uh, it's available in the App Store. You can just search for Dark Sky there. Uh, or you can go to 5x5.darkskyapp.com, which will support the show. And it costs $3.99. And uh, some Canadian folks have let us know that it doesn't uh, work uh, in Canada, and I'm assuming that there's some, uh, maybe maybe it only works in the U.S., John. Yeah, KJ Healy in the chat room says he re- reiterates his offer to develop a version of Dark Sky for Ireland. It would be a static <laughs> ping that reads, it's raining or soon will be. <laughs> yeah, I've heard so many stories from people using this Dark Sky app that they're like, they're, they'll be outside and they'll, they'll look at the thing and it'll be like rain coming in like one minute and they would like duck under something and then exactly one minute later rain comes. It's one of those magical things that, you know, in some 50s video about in the future, you will know when it's raining down to the Like now it, it, it's here. It's another one of those future things. That's true. Yeah. 
And that's how it, that's how it works. I mean, obviously it, it gets more and more accurate, but within an hour, it's really, really accurate down to the minute. A few hours out, it, it might say uh, light rain in an hour or storms in an hour or whatever. But once you get down into like that hour or two range, it's, it's pretty good. So anyway, five by five, the dark sky app.com and go check it out. I love this app. I use this app way constantly all the time. That's the killer feature for like people who are in the city and like commute or walk around. You don't want to know like, is it going to rain today? So do I need to take an umbrella? You want to know, all right, I've got to duck out and get to the to the subway station. Should I go now? Should I wait two minutes? You know, is this is it going to rain before I can get to the subway and I'll be drenched? Or if it's raining now, is this going to stop and there's going to be a gap? That's that's what it's for. Take take a look at your phone, see exactly what you need to know, and go. Because you know you can't go to like one of those weather websites that says like. You know, today, partly rainy. That doesn't help you when you're trying to figure out if you can get to the subway station before without getting drenched. This is, this is true. All right. Topic number two. Yes. I'm going to take advantage of my Friday recording slot and do what so many other hosts have done to me, although not as badly, many times before, which is steal a topic from uh, Marco in this case. This is his topic, all from his blog post. And yet, because he doesn't record until next week, I get to talk about it first. You're, Sorry, you're bogarting the topic from... I totally. I mean, he can talk about it again. Too. He'll, <laughs> he'll give his side of the story, and people who don't listen to both shows will, you know, get the story from uh, him. This is a good topic, then. Yes. All right. So this all started, I guess, before the 4th of July holiday, or around that time, uh, when uh, Marco started tweeting concerns about uh, possible uh, App Store corruption of binaries. Uh, and he posted a blog uh, blog post on the 4th of July that he says, uh, last night after putting up Instapaper, the latest Instapaper update, which is 4.2.3, he got tons of support email and Twitter messages saying that the thing crashes as soon as you launch it. And that's that's a bad feeling for a developer when you put out an update, you're like, la-di-da, here's a point release. Oh, Apple's approved it here. I can push it up to my customers. Won't they be happy? Cool new version of Instapaper. And they all you know flood you with things. I downloaded your update, and as soon as I launched it, it crashes, which sort of shouldn't happen, as Margo points out. Like, that's what the approval process is for. Like, obviously, the thing didn't crash when Marco was testing it, right? He thought this was the one to ship, and he sends it. And Apple tests, and they say, yep, looks great, works fine, we tested it. You know, that's the whole point of the app approval process. Surely nothing that instantly crashes on launch should ever get through the approval process. Uh, and it seemed to be that the the uh, version of the application that people had was not the version of the application that Marco uploaded. Something was wrong with it. It was, you know, it was corrupt, uh, or it was... Uh, incorrectly signed by Apple's DRM things or, you know, there was something wrong with it, okay? But customers don't know that. And what, what you know, as he points out, what customers will think is they'll think you're careless, incompetent, and sloppy for issuing a release that doesn't work. Uh, and, I'll, you know, they don't know the details. So it's, uh, Pan- Panic was talking about this too, Panic Software, another great uh, Mac developer and iOS developer now, that Customers really don't know how the App Store works. We all know how the App Store works because we're reading all these websites from developers listening to these podcasts and stuff. But there's just you know millions and millions of iOS customers, and they have no idea how the approval process works, how much control developers have. When something doesn't work, they blame you, and they don't even know who you are. It's like, the guy who makes Instapaper is bad because I downloaded the latest Instapaper, and it doesn't work. And therefore, they are bad. They have no idea about the app approval process, about corruption, digital signing, nor should, should they need to. Uh, so... The consequence of this is that all these angry people leave you tons of angry one-star reviews saying, this app sucks, I downloaded the update and it broke, this developer stinks, I hate him, one-star, one-star, one-star. Uh, and of course, you know, you you at that point as a developer are extremely prone to pull a Han Solo and say, it's not my fault, because it isn't your fault. <laughs> uh, now, 
what I wanted to talk about actually is this whole concept of how much control developers have over their reputation uh, on the App Store. Uh, but before I go into that, I'll, I'll just rattle off <laughs> what has happened in this story as Marco has posted subsequent blog posts about it. Uh, the first thing he did, actually, that I didn't, I didn't even link to uh, here is he tweeted a whole bunch of... He, he was tracking how many people rewrote his blog post about uh, binary app store corruption. And he would, you know, all these different news sites would, uh, would post about the story and he was rating them on how well they provided a link back to the original source. And like a game of telephone on the internet, like one uh, site would, would post the story with very poor attribution, like either not mentioning his name or not providing a link or both. And then another story will cite that site as the original source. It'll say, you know, they'll, you know, A.com will say B.com reports that blah, 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 as if B.com was the source of the story. And repeat that over 800 times, and eventually the original source of the story is entirely lost. Uh, So that was a fun exercise. Uh, But subsequently, he posted more about it. So the the next post was that Apple responded to this. Uh, He he had been on, on the original post tracking... You know, who else has this problem? I know my new Instapaper update has a problem. Anyone else? And like people just sent him their lists of the applications that had problems. And eventually the list got to 114 applications and he stopped updating it. So he's like, okay, this is a widespread problem. Apple needs to do something about this. And so Apple eventually did contact the various Mac news outlets that have a relationship with Apple, including Macworld and uh, Jim Dalrymple's own uh, The Loop. And uh, Marco provided a link to Jim's quote from Apple on this. Apple said, we had a temporary issue that began yesterday with a server that generated DRM code for some apps being downloaded. It affected a small number of users. The issue has been rectified and we don't expect it to occur again. Users who experience an issue launching an app caused by the server bug can delete the affected app and re-download it. So there you go. Apple said, yes, that's us. Our bad. We had a problem. We don't expect it to happen again. If the people are having a problem, they should delete and re-download. And incidentally, Marco had been telling people to delete and re-download, and they would delete, re-download, and have the exact same problem. But as hours passed, eventually, the re-downloads did work. Uh, but that's a very complicated process there. Uh, and the other part of this, uh, Marco's most recent post, it was just posted today, uh, entitled Apple's Fix for Corrupt Binaries, was that uh, there, there had been rumors and reports from other things that Apple was going to delete all those one-star reviews, those sort of unfair uh, one-star reviews. Uh, but what they've actually done, according to Marco, is they've triggered a re-update on any application that had this problem. So what it means is that the, they take the, whatever the current version of the application is and they make it seem like it was just posted. Because when a new version is posted, you get like a new section in the reviews, like the cur- these are reviews for the current version, right? And they basically just re-updated it so it looks like it's a new version to everybody. Uh, and so all the reviews for the, the quote-unquote current version are reset, even though it's the same version as it was before. So it's a fresh start for the reviews, right? Uh, for, for this set of reviews, anyway. And the corrected binaries show up as updates, even if you had the same version before. It's really right, it doesn't, it doesn't actually increment the version number either, for the right. record. It's, it's the same version. However, they are treating it as a different yeah. version. Yeah. It appears that way, and, it, and that is very handy because if you have to instruct everybody to delete and reinstall, like, that's a pain. Like, you just want it to show up as an update, but you don't want to have to require every developer to resubmit a, a, a literal new version of their application to, to go through the approval process again. So Apple is sort of using the back-end machinery to cheat this. 
Uh, I think Marco had said that the one-star reviews are actually still there, but for the, they're for the previous version, which is the same as the new version, but not really from the perspective of the store, and it's all very confused. Uh, but uh, forcing the update so that uh, anyone who downloaded the bad one will just see a little uh, a badge on their App Store icon and you say, oh, here's an update. I bet this one fixes it. Uh, so that's what they've done, and uh, Marco approves that move, and this has just kind of been quite a cluster, especially happening over your you know, holiday, 4th of July and everything. Oh, and, and when we don't uh, still, by the way, we don't really know really what happened. Apple has yeah. not really said what happened. We know that there was a problem, but this almost goes back to that problem that I told you about weeks ago, where a lot of the time I'll get downloads from Apple uh, from whatever part of the CDN that I'm on now that will be corrupt. They'll just be yeah. corrupt. Now, it, I don't think that this is a widespread problem. But I certainly understand people's frustration is that you're trying to download something and it, it doesn't work. And there's yeah, we, no reason. You mentioned that, uh, that your problems downloading uh, Apple's stuff from Apple servers. You mentioned that on After Dark and I kept meaning to follow up on it in After Dark. But since you mentioned it now, uh, did you did you try all those things that the people sent us feedback about? Like yes. your router being set up with like the, the packet flood denial thing? Yes. Those all sounded like really good theories to me. Did they were great theories. I tried every single one of them out independently. I tried them out in tandem, in conjunction, all different combinations of them, uh, and, and none of them, none of them helped. Uh, it's, it is not a DNS problem. Changing DNS service does not fix it. The MTU was not an issue, et cetera, et cetera. All excellent, excellent suggestions. Um, I, it, it, it is simply an issue of the, and so here's what the issue was. Since we did this on an After Dark, and although a lot of people enjoy the After Darks, not everyone listens many or most of the large downloads that we do uh, here from Apple and only from Apple wind up being corrupted. This can include a Mac OS X update. It can include a large iOS game like Infinity Blade 2. Uh, it could be a variety of things, but I, there is sort of a, a size association with it. I'm not sure that it has to be in hundreds of megs, but it has to be relatively a large file. Now, by the way, I download tons and tons of uh, large files from other servers, whether it's an Ubuntu distribution, who knows what it is, but it's perfectly fine. And uh, so my solution to this, when it was a Mac OS X update or something, is I would go to one of my, uh, I have a number of Mac minis over at macminicolo.net. Great guys, by the way. I would log into my developer account. For example, I wanted to download the iOS 6 beta. I wouldn't be able to download that here. So I'd have to remote to my Mac mini uh, in the Mac Mini Colo, I would log into my developer account there, download it there, and then SCP it from that machine to this machine. Well, that would work fine. It wasn't the files. It was just this CDN distribution point that I'm stuck on right now for whatever reason uh, here that was creating the problem. I could download the very same file from anyone but Apple. So what I actually eventually wound up doing was getting a, on a server, one of the servers I managed, setting up a proxy server uh, just for all of the stuff that comes from Apple's downloads and uh, proxying that from that server. So now when I download it, at least on, on the Macs, it doesn't work for the iOS devices, but I have the Macs configured to use that proxy server. So whenever we do a download or system update or whatever, because none of the computers, um, we've got 12 or more here, none of them would work. So the proxy server now facilitates the appropriate downloading. And I think it's just something to do with the screwy CDN in, in this area. 
My favorite theory from the email was that it was your router's flood protection, that it only came up with Apple servers because they have such good access and, and very fast servers that are very close to you that they're the only servers that trigger your router's poorly configured flood protection. And then they would just send so many packets to your router go, whoa, 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 I'm getting a denial of service attack and stop dro- start dropping packets and then end up corrupting it. That was my favorite theory. Yeah, that was a pretty cool one. I mean, if, and, and just, to, just so that people who are wondering about this, uh, I, I mean, I, I've spent uh, an earlier part of my career as a network and system administrator. So I appreciated the, the network and sysadmins who had ideas and, and, and things like that, that those really made sense to me. And I mean, I really broke this thing down as simply as possible. I'm talking about, I would have a Mac, I would turn off Wi-Fi on it. I would plug it in directly to the ethernet port of the cable modem, nothing in between it. I would have the cable modem with just, you know, even I even turned off network address translation on it and just had it give like the straight IP having the Mac exposed to the world and doing that and it didn't work. I mean, you you know, you can't get more simple than that. Yes, I rebooted the router, but I am just terrified to have the Time Warner folks come out and do anything. Yeah. Did you have one of those models? Because they were saying on this specific model, look at all these internet threads of people who, if you have this specific model of router that has some stupid flood protection on it, that's a problem. So if you if you have this router, go into the settings, turn off the flood protections. Did you have any of the models that they suggested, or did you have a different one? No, I, I think I believe I had a, a different one. I I know a few people went in and uh, submitted that, and I went through like there was there was more than one email, and I think the first email I went through and looked. Uh, but I didn't continue to pursue it down there because I just I didn't think that that was what it was. And again, I I don't know if I even want to do anything about it because any time that you have somebody come into your house and take hardware away and put their hardware back in, you're just asking for trouble. And there were there was the whole other camp of people who said you you would let a cable company put their router in your ha- your cable modem in your house. You don't have your own. Of course, you should have your own. That's the problem. And in the past, I have, I have done this. I've purchased my own cable modem, and I should be more careful about calling it a router because it is a router, but it is a cable modem. Uh, I should be more specific about that cable modem. I have had my own cable modem and have had it uh, swapped it out for the one that they have and set it up with them. And I, I'm, that is my next uh, option here is, doing, is just doing that. Just that way I know for sure that I can eliminate that problem and do whatever i want so that may be next yeah so and i've had similar issues with the 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 in-home things and i have the same fear of someone coming out like since verizon has upgraded their file speeds i think i can get an upgrade to even more ludicrous speeds uh but they would have to come (laughs) in my house and replace my uh network terminator thing that's down in the basement the one that the one that i have by the way is is the um it is like the the generic Motorola, uh, you know, Doxis two type residential gateway server. No Doxis three down there in Texas. No, I'm sorry, Doxis three. Yeah, I'm apologizing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's Doxis three, but it's yeah, just it's it. just like the basic. I guess they call it a surfboard. A lot of the people that had written in one guy uh, out in uh, in the Netherlands says, "Oh, it's probably those awful." The Thompson TWG eight seventy Euro Doxis three O modems. You know, <laughs> no, it's it's not that one. Yeah, the, it's a known problem. I used to rent the my cable modem back when I had cable as well, and there is actually some advantage to that. People said like, well, you shouldn't rent it. You know, you're going to have internet access your whole life. Just buy one yourself. It's much cheaper than renting it. Yeah, uh, which is true. 
but way back when this wasn't the case and I had like it was then called Media One. I had their cable modem and eventually it started getting flaky and I would have people come out and uh eventually when the guy came out for like the third time he just replaced it with a newer version and that solved all the problems. So the one advantage of renting uh a cable modem is that you can get a new model whenever you want just by complaining. Yeah. It's like wait until like the new the model has changed, like the one they give people. And then you just call and say this thing is broken and they'll just give you a new one. And, you know, you will, you know, the, the only advantage of renting is that you can keep, be, keep, be kept up to date without having to spend money to buy a new one. But I think the rental rights for cable modems have gone down. and I think the prices of them have also gone down. So you have to do the math on that. But you have no choice in the matter for fiber optic because you have to have their device. And the one I have now is working fine. And I really don't want someone to come in and give me the faster one for fear that it will screw something up, especially since. I don't use their router. Like what I'm talking about is the ONT. I think it's optical network terminator right. or something like that. Uh, at, what comes out of that is a coax, and normally, uh, normally that coax goes to their big honking router thing. Yeah, and then out of the router comes Ethernet, and then it goes on its way. And out of the router also comes coax to go to your TV. So the coax goes from your TV to this router, and from the router to the ONT, and that lets you do like you know on demand and pay per view and stuff like that like two-way communication over the cable. I don't do that. I feel the coax right from the ONT and bring it to my television, which means I can't have uh, on-demand or pay-per-view, none of which I care about. Right. So I can't do two-way communications over the coax, but that also means that I take Ethernet directly from the ONT, and that goes from there directly into my own router, which is Apple's Airport Extreme, and then from there to my entire network. And I feel much more comfortable having all my own hardware except the ONT. And I'm afraid if they replace it with something like, oh, well, this one doesn't have you know, an Ethernet jack on it. You have to use our router, and it'll just be a big mess, so... Yeah, and right then now, it, it, you're, you're doing the right thing, John. And just for the people who are wondering, was it the firewall? Was it IP flood detection? I mean, all of those things are disabled and, and have always been disabled. And then I would never tolerate something as absurd as port scan detection on a cable modem. That's no way. Yeah, and now you, would, you might think that this episode with Marco and the corrupt application binaries lends credence to, to the idea that Apple sometimes gets... Screw, screws up the distribution of their software on CDNs and stuff like that. But Apple's explanation of this and the evidence presented by Marco in terms of the error messages in the console logs show it to be a DRM-related failure. As yeah. in like that, you know, they, they have servers that sign stuff to make it available for distribution, and the signing process went wonky. Uh, so it's not like the file, the, the file as uploaded to the CDM was correct, but it got corrupted somewhere along the way, and then it's just distributing bad binaries. It's it's this the part of the mechanism created a bad file, and that bad file was then correctly distribu- distributed on the CDN. Uh, it doesn't seem like well, I don't know, maybe for iOS updates that could be the case. Are they signed? But certainly macOS 10 updates are not cryptographically signed in that way uh, up on the CDNs. Right. Although, I don't know, let me think about that, because it does get signed, if you download it from the Mac App Store, it does get stamped with your Mac App Store ID and everything like that, but I'm pretty sure... That's just take, the like, download itself that's, that's well, yeah, you're, no, you're right, there is some kind of stampage. It just says that it belongs to you. I wonder if, that, I've actually not tested that, if you took, if I downloaded like the Lion installer and then put it on somebody else's computer and don't sign in with my Apple ID, can I launch the installer? I mean, it's, it's mostly... I think you can. Yeah, I, I think you can too. And even if you couldn't, you just you just show package contents, and inside there are DMGs. But this is, you know what I mean? Like the the actual OS has no activation or anything like that at all. It's just the little wrapper that the stuff comes in that is connected to the person who uh, originally bought it. But I don't think it'll even stop you from launching it. 
Uh, and then, like I said, inside are the actual OS installers who are just, you know, M- MPKG files that have multiple packages inside them. You're just off to the races. You don't need any of the wrapper stuff. All right. What are, how are we doing on time? Just crossed one hour. Just crossed right. an hour, and it is 12.35. Do you want to do a third sponsor? Yeah, and then I'll, I'll finish up with the, the other topic that Marco's adventures uh, inspired me to talk about. This is a, it's a good topic. We could go on for a long, long time about that one. But we won't. No? People always, they, they want it. They want the long shows. They really do. So our third sponsor, it's a different kind of a sponsor for 5x5. It's uh, Sifter Stickers. It's different because it's not software. It's not an iOS app. It's not a service. It's not a productivity tool, but it's something that you might like. It's a book. It's called Sifter Stickers. It has 73 essays in it. And uh, the author, Jack Azut, he may have some interests that I think would appeal to the listeners of this show. Uh, what's cool about it? Well, it's, it's ruminations on different topics. It's a lot like the old Andy Rooney segments on 60 Minutes, but he's not crusty. He's not cantankerous in that way. But it's diverse topics. And the, the name Sifter Stickers, this is a, kind of an homage, or an homage, as you would say, to Stephen King, who once drew a metaphor between the human mind and a sifter, where most of the information that's presented, it's filtered through the holes and lost forever, but some of the information sticks to the sifter. So this is a tribute to King, whose work Jack uh, enjoys immensely, and uh, the title of the book helps to explain the contents. It's essays about material that at some point found his way in, into his mind, and it's the kind of topics I think that, that you guys would like. So you can get it as a paperback book if you like it that way. You can download it as a PDF, get it in the Amazon Kindle store, Apple iBook store, even in the, the Barnes & Noble Nook store, which, by the way, exists. And you can search for Sifter Stickers in any of those, or better yet, go to sifterstickers.com, S-I-F-T-E-R, stickers.com. I think you'll enjoy Jack's book, and I uh, would like to say thanks very much uh, to him for supporting these shows this week, sifterstickers.com. Check it out. Hope you like it. You know what this sponsor means, don't you? That uh, people who read listen to this show. No, that means that you are like maybe five steps removed from getting Coca-Cola as a sponsor for this show. Because you're branching out now. It's not, oh, you can only advertise iOS applications, Mac applications, or websites. Like, is that the only thing you can advertise? And I said, no, we can just regular books. And then soon it's going to be Coca-Cola. Or if not Coca-Cola. Pepsi. Soda Stream. Come on, let's at least say Oh, we, we, we do want Soda Stream. Because like, that's... That's getting closer. But I'm saying SodaStream is a stepping point. Then Coca-Cola and pretty soon, like, you know, I don't know, Jaguar cars. To go take a may have been reference. Do we want Coca-Cola as a sponsor? I don't know. Do you, are you a Coke person or a Pepsi person? Oh, that's such a stupid question. Well, let's say in your previous life, were you a Coke person or a Pepsi person? Coca-Cola, of course. All right. Oh, yeah, and I I, you want the one with, with sugar, not the one with the cane. Uh, can, can you tell the difference? Have you ever blind course. taste tested yourself? I cannot tell the difference. I blind taste tested. I uh, thought you were a super Coke. taster. I know, but like, I, I guess I'm overwhelmed by the other uh, properties <laughs> the ever, of the soda. The Evervensis, yeah. it's too much for yeah. me. And, and we did, a whole bunch of us did it, and none of us could tell the difference. You can so tell I, the difference. I question your ability. Do blind taste test in paper cups, double blind. Now? I can't do it now. It's too I sweet know, like, for me now. You could teach your kid about science to say, we're going to do a double blind taste <laughs> test of, you know, make sure they're exactly the same temperature, all in paper cups, uh, double blind so the person giving you the drinks doesn't know which is which either. Uh, uh, Mexican Coke versus regular sugar versus corn syrup and see if you can tell the difference. I what about the Dublin Dr. Pepper? Did you ever get a chance to try the Dublin Dr. Pepper before it was gone? 
I don't know what that is. The Dublin Dr. Pepper was a, it was, I think it was based, it might not have been based in Austin, but it's nearby. And it, it, they were making, somehow they had acquired the rights to be able to make the original Dr. Pepper recipe that contains sugar and the original, whatever number of ingredients it was, seven or 17 or whatever, 32. But there were a certain number of ingredients that it had that they were making it and they were bottling it in the original old style little bottles that would say Dublin Dr. Pepper. And it had real, and it there, if you couldn't tell the difference between the sugar uh, and the, the syrup versions of Coca-Cola, I guarantee you, absolutely guarantee you, you'd be able to tell the difference between a Dublin Dr. Pepper and a, a regular, regular Dr. Pepper, because there's a big difference. But I guess Dr. Pepper, somebody shut, they, they eventually sold to them or shut down or something. So I don't, I don't, and then Dr. Pepper itself started making like a Dr. Pepper original flavor or classic or something that's hard to find, but you can still find, but it's not the same. Yeah, I, rem- I think I remember that story. I just didn't know the Dublin Dr. Pepper name. Yeah. They go back to making uh, Coca-Cola with cocaine in it or codeine or whatever chemical was in it that they now is not. I don't think that would fly. It was in, it was in Dublin, Texas, hence the name Dublin Dr. Pepper. Yeah, but you got Paris, Texas, you got Dublin, Texas. It's big All enough that it, it, Texas is so big they that it can actually, uh, smaller countries can, can exist within it. There you go. There's a whole Europe of uh, Texas that you can visit. I'll put this, there's a, there's a Wikipedia article that, that has the story of what happened in there. I'll put that in there. Cane, right. cane sugar instead of high fructose corn syrup. So you could make no pilgrimages. One. You could go to the Dublin Dr. Pepper plant, tour it. All right, Marco. On yes, to Marco. The, the reason I wanted to talk about this topic was not just to finally steal a topic from other shows instead of having them steal them from me. Uh, or not steal them, but talk about them before I get a chance to. Let's put it that way, because that is more accurate. Uh, the, the reason I wanted to, to talk about it was because it's a great example of one of the remaining problems in the App Store. Uh, now, when this was going on, when like uh, Marco posted his update and was getting all these uh, people complaining that it was broken and stuff, uh, he made a tweet that he said, uh, if there's a rate limit on report a concern, I think I just hit it. <laughs> and what he's talking about <laughs> is the report a concern link uh, that's next to the comments and in the App Store and iTunes. And so like, when you're going through the comments, you can click like, was this, was this review helpful? Yes, no. And there's also at the top there, the thing says report a concern. Uh, and then... When you click on that, it brings up this little dialogue that explains to you what it is that you're doing here. And Apple says, when reporting a concern, remember the following. Uh, the first item is the author of this review will not receive your concern. They always call it your concern. I don't know what they want to call it, your complaint, your whatever. You have just have a concern. It's like the, uh, the code word, like issue. You don't have a problem. You have an issue. And I just have a concern. Uh, the next thing is to indicate whether a review is helpful, click yes or no next to was this review helpful. If many people indicate a review is not helpful, it will be sorted towards the bottom of the list of reviews. They're trying to tell you this is not where you tell us that you don't like this review because we already have the helpful yes no link uh, and so once you're through that it says there's a little pop-up menu that says concern colon so what is your concern and the choices in that menu the only choices in that menu are this review contains offensive material like if someone just like curses or posts links to porn or something uh, second item is this review is not a review or is off topic I like the not a review thing. This review is not a review at all it's just you know a manifesto or someone is posting their poetry or it is completely off topic uh, the third option confuses me. It says, I disagree with this review. 
that do you report a concern because you disagree? Don't you put just like not helpful or something? Like if you disagree with it, like if someone rates it one star and you rated an app five star, could you then not validly go to report a concern and select the I disagree with it because you do? You know, you rated it five star, they rated it one star, you disagree. Is that a reason to report it as a concern? It's just a difference of opinion. So that option is weird to me. And the final option is my concern is not listed here. And then there's a uh, comment box, like a text area. We just get to write whatever you want to write. So when this was going on and people were leaving tons of one-star reviews, Marco's there hammering on the report of concern link. And I assume he was picking, you can ask him on his show. I assume he was picking, uh, my concern is, no, is not listed here. Because his concern was, this review is based on a bogus version of the binary that you, you Apple, distributed. And it's not my fault. Please remove this review. And he's probably was just copying and pasting that same text over and over again, reporting concern in every single one of those one-star reviews because they weren't fair. Uh, now, on this topic of what what role the developer of the application has in that section of the store, like, you know, there's a software store and there's a section where people say stuff about the software. If you are the developer of the software, what, what role can you play in that little forum? And in the app store, the answer is basically none. You as the developer uh, don't get to participate in that discussion in any meaningful way. I think you can leave a review of your own software. Marco, again, this is, I'll leave stuff for Marco. He can say whether that's possible. But even if you did, that would just be one review. You can't uh, reply to other people's reviews or anything like that. Uh, and on that topic, Google made news recently saying that they were going to add to the Google Play Store uh, the ability for developers to respond to reviews to their software. Uh, I put a link to this in the show notes, uh, a post by Trevor Johns on the Android blog. Uh, so it'll let any developer reply to reviews and will also notify the person who wrote the review via email that the developer has responded to them. And then the two of them have been connected together. So, you know, if you see a review that says, I hate this piece of software, it doesn't have a feature uh, that does X, Y, Z, you as a developer can reply and say, actually, we do have that feature. Uh, it's under this menu or whatever. Uh, and then at that point, you are connected with them because it will send that person an email. In addition to your review showing up there for everybody to see when they go and read the reviews, it will also send an email to that person. And now you, the developer, are directly connected to that person because they can reply to you via email and then you can have an email conversation about what the problem was. But uh, the, the more important factor from the perspective of an iTunes App Store participant or developer is that anyone else who goes to read their review and sees that one-star review there that says, I hate this app, it doesn't have this feature, they'll see your reply that says, no, actually, you're mistaken. It does have that feature. Here it is. Or, you know, if you couldn't find it, we should improve on how we may. Or whatever, whatever the reply is, you get a chance to respond. Whereas when Marco's seeing these completely unfair, completely unjustified one-star reviews for something that was totally not his fault, he can't, you know, put a message there under the review and say, uh, this review, which apparently will be here forever because at this time he didn't know that Apple was going to reset these, uh, the, the, the reviews thing. He can explain, look, this was that time when there was like a couple hours or a couple days where the Apple was distributing corrupt binaries and this is not my fault. So these one-star reviews should not count against me. Uh, he can't reply to that. Now, even if he could reply, would he want to reply every single one of those? Like he updated his app description with a big note that says, you know, there was a problem. If you're having problems, this is not my fault. You'll have to redownload or delete it, blah, blah, blah. But the reviews themselves, he didn't, he didn't have any way to participate in. And this was a particular crisis that uh, brought this to a head. But in general, the, the situation is the same. If you just feel like you're getting an unfair review, people saying things that are simply not true about your software, uh, like claiming that features that do exist don't exist. Or, you know, saying something about you or about your software that's just not true. You can't, it, it, but someone else reading those reviews has no way of 
you know, ascertaining the validity of that statement because they haven't downloaded it yet and there are no trials, so they can't determine for themselves that that's the case. And, and you only have so much room in the description, you can't individually refute every one-star review in your description because that would be silly as well. And I think Apple would probably yell at you if you did that. Uh, so that, that's kind of why Google was trumpeting, you know, hey, in the Google Play Store, you developers can respond to your reviews, something that Apple has, you know, they didn't say this, but something that Apple has not let you do, come over to the Android side. It's nicer here. We respect developers who ask them to participate. Uh, in response to this Google Play thing, oh, I got I to gotta work on this name here. Someone whose name that I worked on the pronunciation for last night and I actually received an MP3, which I have linked in the show notes, <laughs> of the correct pronunciation of this person's last name, which I encourage everyone to check out. I have the wrong pronunciation in my head, so let's see. It's Matt Gemmel. That's what I'm going with. Go Matt with it. Gemmel. It's good. Yeah, it's pretty good. He has a blog post in his blog, mattgemmel.com. Uh, titled Replying to, or was it the title? Replying to App Store Reviews? Yes. And in it, he talks about, you know, the idea that we can't respond to our, our App, Store's re- App Store reviews. Uh, he first, he, he talks about why reviews are bad, why, why we have these crazy type of reviews. And he once again references something that we've referenced in this show in the past, which is John, Gra- John Gabriel's greater internet FWAD theory, but it doesn't say FWAD. I'm just trying to maintain our clean tag. Yes. And I have a link to this Penny Arcade comic. The theory is written on a blackboard in a comic with humorous illustrations. It says normal person plus anonymity plus audience equals total (laughs) F-wad. Which is basically the internet in a nutshell. (laughs) Now, now, you don't really have anonymity in the App Store because you'll have some sort of like name. But the name could be, you know, Velociraptor 559, right? doesn't there's no connection to you. And that's part of the big problem. It's like, there's no email address connected with that. There's no nothing. So developers can't even say, okay, Velociraptor 599, what was the name of the dinosaur in Toy Story 3 that the Triceratops, the female Triceratops was chatting to? Oh, um, oh you're talking about Rex, the main... No, in Toy Story 3, yeah, when uh, they're, it, they're at like that little girl's house and Woody is there with the other toys. There's a big Totoro in the background and they're trying to... Uh, Trixie? Velocistar? Someone in the chat room will get Oh, what her name? What Trixie's yeah. actual name? No, no, no. Like, the oh, the Triceratops toy is playing on a computer, and then I am a window uh, appears. Velocistar 237. There you go. Just a dinosaur. I love that movie. <laughs> all right, so that, that's all you've got to go on, and you can't, you can't reply to that person even privately because you have no idea who they are. You can't suss out who they are. Like that, Their name is not a link to anything, so you have no engagement with them. So not only can you not reply publicly, you can't reply. Uh, you know, so th- it's not like you're anonymous anonymous, but there's enough anonymity that people can be uh, really annoying, and they will get very angry needlessly at you for things that are not your fault. And even when there are legitimate concerns like, boy, I wish this application had feature X, Y, and Z. They'll be like, one star review, not changing my review until you change this feature. And another thing, you know, like, they'll just go nuts on you. And, and that stinks to have no way to respond to those people in any way, public or private. Uh, but Matt Gamble comes down and saying that he doesn't think Apple should add the ability to respond to comments in the comments, like publicly respond to these people so that other people who go and read that one star review will then also see your response to that one star review. Um, what he says basically is there's nothing to be gained from engaging people at that level. He says he's not saying they should, we shouldn't engage with customers. We should be able to, and that's something that Google understands. But he says that Google has chosen an odd and poorly considered mechanism of encouraging app developers to air their dirty laundry in public. 
and burnout doing to ha- due to having additional public support for them over which they have zero control. This is horrible. Count me out. Uh, he says that uh, the problem with responding publicly is that it's soul-destroying. <laughs> if, if you're able to respond <laughs> to reviews, you'll be checking them obsessively, and you will respond. Worse, you'll inevitably do so in a snitty defensive way that pleads the value of your time or the extremely modest investment the user has made or your need to support your family or the triumph of rational thinking. Don't be that guy. Nobody cares, least of all some idiot 16-year-old or Mr. I'm an important, important lawyer. Those are two subspecies of the people who leave you horrible reviews, by the way. 16-year-olds and lawyers. <laughs> You will only lower and tarnish yourself. You're screaming at the wind. So this is his first argument against allowing uh, public responses. I don't like the assumption that developers will necessarily be pulled down to the level of the worst of the commenters. Right? Like, I don't think that's inevitable. It may be likely due to human nature, but it's not inevitable that you will become just as bad as them if you are allowed to respond publicly. Yes, you will have all those motivations. Yes, you will think about, oh, boy, this this person didn't spend any time to really understand what the issue was with the application, and they don't understand I need to feed my family, and really this person is crazy, and they just think about it rationally. Like, those could all be true, but surely if you're developing software, you will acquire some skill for doing actual you know, support in, in a good way. And if, if you're not suited to that, if you don't want to be a support person or you can't, then, you know, outsource it or hire someone else to be your support person as even many independent one, one or two person shops do. They get one person on board to be their support. Support is part of being a good software developer. And if you can't do it in a public forum on, on like the iTunes store, I don't think you'll be able to do it that well elsewhere. Uh, uh, one of the things he says is that people tend to be nicer in private than they are in public because once you have an audience, that's part of the... Uh, greater internet FWAD theory, which I have to keep censoring myself about, uh, that once things are happening with an audience, it brings out the worst in everybody. Uh, that, I think there's lots of truth to that, but I've also definitely seen situations where someone will be much nicer in public, and once they get into a private email, they become a snarled, rabid, crazy person because they know no one else is looking, and this is a, you know, an unattractive side of themselves that they don't want to show, and many of the, my worst, you know, I have anti-fans, people who hate me with a fiery passion, they will make comments against me in public forums, but they will send me the worst pub, you know, private emails you have ever seen. So this happens on both sides of the coin there. Uh, the, other thing, the other thing Matt talks about, uh, the problem with responding publicly, is that you're calling someone out. Like the person, who, the person who said this, you're basically slapping them down in public. No matter how much you equivocate or try to uphold the laughable and utterly broken concept that the customer is somehow always right, you, you'll always look like you're slapping them down. You're not just making a public reply. You're obliging the customer to make another public remark to follow up yours, and people get defensive when they're called out in public. There's some truth to that as well. But again, that, that comes down to how do you do good support, privately or publicly? You, you, know, you have to understand the context in which you're replying and do it in a helpful and polite way. And yes, you have to just, you know, you don't get to defend yourself. Like it's not an exercise in showing that this commenter is wrong. You have to provide good support. Good, providing good support is difficult, but it's one of the skill sets you need for being a software developer. Uh, I don't think, like, I don't think you're protecting anyone from anything by not allowing public replies, because uh, again, I don't, I don't agree with this assumption that if you allow public replies, it will just end in disaster. If it's going to end in disaster publicly, it will probably also end in disaster privately. And maybe the problem is that you're just not very good at support, and you should get someone else to do it. Like, it's not easy. It's hard to do good support. It's harder probably to do good support in public. Uh, and you have to put limits on that. But once you can reply at all, you, I mean, even if your public reply is, 
something very polite that merely directs the person with the problem to contact you directly. That's something at least, right? And then people who look at that can see, like, even if you don't refute what they've said, you can say, okay, well, when I, this, this developer really cares about their software because every time someone says something bad about it, they post a nice, polite thing that invites them to give private feedback. And I don't see what that private feedback is, but I like the idea that this person is reading his reviews and being polite to his customers and trying to address their concerns in some way. Like, even minimally, I think anybody could pull that off. Just have, like, a macro or a text expander shortcut that just splats out, like, your boilerplate uh, I'm upset, it's, you know, I'm sorry that you're having a problem with our software. Please contact blah, 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 blah. Send us an email. We would love to help you out, blah, blah, blah. Something like that, right? Uh, so Matt has his suggestions for uh, what could be used instead of public replies to help this. Uh, an up-down vote to flag reviews. I mean, it already has those with the yes, no helpful thing. Uh, the phrasing of was this review helpful is weird, but a lot of sites do that. Uh, it's just kind of the standard these days. A, a much more visible app-specific support links. Uh, he, said, he calls them the current location of support links willfully and cynically inconspicuous. Like there should be a big honk and you, so you have a problem with this app, click this giant button to contact the developer of this application because then finally you can have, you can start a relationship with the developer and they can help you and it can be a two-way communication instead of you just, you know, publicly scrolling on a wall to the developer as a duty head. Uh, strong encouragement to use support before posting a review. So again, so, some way to like when you click to leave a review, it could say, hey, are you about to leave a nasty review because you're having problems? Maybe you'd like to try the support link. And it is, you know, go to blah, 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 or send an email to blah, 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 like something like that. In the same way that when you report a concern, it tries to head you off at the pass by saying, are you sure this is what you want to be doing? Because if you just want to say if the, report, the review is helpful or not, you should, you know, click this button. And this is what it will do if you do that, right? Uh, and last one, above all, a way for developers to reply privately to public reviews. Just simply a way to say, okay, developers, this, you know, oh, I've forgotten it again, Velocistar 559 or 257 or whatever Two, yeah. has, has some problem. Click this little link and you can send an email. We won't show you this person's email, but you, you know, fill in this box and click this button and this will go to this person. And then you can, you can address them privately. Other people who see their nasty review won't see your reply, but at the very least you can help that person. And if you successfully help that person in, in private, then maybe that person will come back and change their review to be nicer or add an update that says, hey, I had this problem, the developer contacted me directly, and they really helped me out. I, like, I wonder I wonder so much if those people who leave one-star uh, one reviews and are so pissed off that things are going wrong, I wonder if they're like, boy, I left this one-star review, and the developer didn't even contact me. He didn't even care enough to see what my problem was. What, this like, developer sucks. Like, the developer can't contact you. He has no idea who you are. He has no way to contact you, and nobody knows that. Like, I mean, nobody for, you know, first approximation, nobody knows how the App Store works at all. Customers don't know or care. They're probably just over there stewing in their juices, thinking the developers don't care. And developers are like, I would love to help you. The button is like six pixels to the left, or just hold down shift when you hit this thing, and the thing will be there. Or like, <laughs> if it's crashing, help me figure it out. Or like, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> I, I I understand the frustration with the App Store. And I think this is one of the biggest remaining problems with the App Store. We've talked about software updates before, but this this divorcing of, of developers from their customers like uh, magazine publishers had this big bee in their bonnet about this divorce as well because they're like oh those are our customers and we want to have that information because we can sell it and it's a big part of our business and developers like having a direct relationship because they like to be able to tell people about you know if you bought one of my apps maybe you like the other one of my apps and cross promote and give discounts and do all these other things but just ignoring that entirely ignoring the money part where apple wants to get themselves in the middle of the money thing and say no those aren't your customers anymore those are our customers 
you don't sell software anymore. You are now a sharecropper on the Apple farm and all the checks that you get in the mail are signed by Apple. None of those checks that you get in the mail are signed by customers. You know, the customers send us money and then we send you money if we feel like it, right? That's that's a big change in the relationship and the money angle is a whole separate issue in terms of what they get for that uh, promotion and exposure and stuff. But this is totally outside of money. This is just like, look, I want to be a good software developer. I want to support my customers. Let me connect with my customers. I'm not asking to get their credit card numbers and so I can spam them and so I can harvest their email addresses or anything. I just want to help do good support. And the App Store is getting in the way of that. And that seems crazy to me and crazy making. And I don't even have an app in the App Store. But if I did, it would probably drive me nuts. So uh, I really feel for App Store developers. Uh, I disagree with Matt Gemmel that we shouldn't allow public replies. But I'd be willing to say that anything that puts customers in touch with developers in any meaningful way beyond what happens now, which is basically nothing, would be a vast improvement. And there we go, under 130. What do you say to that, I am, Dan Benjamin? I am shocked. I am surprised. 1 p.m. on the nose. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I think, I think there would be a lot of angry listeners. I don't think so. No? I'm I was, I'm debating actually having a show sometime where I just go through all of my angry email. Like I, I at a certain level of anger, those things don't make it to the feedback because like if it, you know if they have a point, their point will make it, but their anger does not. But will do do you find that when the people write, are they angry about something that you've said, or is it just purely hate? Like they they don't like you as a person, or what? What do you find that uh, is no, the most common? Most of the feedback is not personal hate or whatever. Most of it is like. Uh, substantive feedback with little pieces of things that are not really relevant. You know, mm-hmm. one or two little uh, personal attacks thrown in. And that's why I just, you know, ignore them or whatever. I, luckily, the crazy people who send me email uh, for the things I write online don't listen to the show or don't even know the show exists. So they don't come here and like, why would they even bother? So the vast majority of the feedback I get is excellent, very high quality, but some people just have a bee in their bonnet about one thing or another, and they will slip that into an otherwise coherent email. So I usually just skim over that. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't want to go too meta about like, you know, <laughs> let's catalog all the emails. People who like follow, people who don't. People who like longer shows, people who like shorter shows. People who like programming, people who don't like programming topics. People who like, want me to talk about cars, people who never want me to talk about anything that doesn't have Apple in the name. Like, there's a, quite a range there on, on all fronts. Uh, one final thing before we put a cap on this. I almost hesitate to do this because it's it's actually asking for people to send email, which is which is crazy. Ooh. Like, and we know what we're gonna get. Should, should I do this or should I not do this? I, it's up to you. Well, I don't know what you're gonna do. I mean, you'd... I was going to solicit feedback from uh, from listeners about whether they would like me to cover a particular topic, and then I was going to tell them to email me, positive or negative, whether I should cover this. Is that actually you know what I should do? I'm gonna I'm gonna table this for now. Uh, we could do a little. What we could do is we could do something where people could get in there and upvote. Yeah, survey monkey thing. Yeah, yeah, something like we need yeah, that because so email is is too hard to manage. Yeah, for, I approve of the idea. I think it's a wonderful idea. Yeah, we'd have to like because this is a topic that I recognize is going to be off topic for the show or a show format that will be different than what we've had before. So I, yeah, I think we have to make a poll. So we'll 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 table this and maybe like, do you have any existing accounts with like the various online poll things, or is that part? Yeah, of Yeah, yeah, we'll have? yeah we'll get something going. Yeah, because it's just gonna, uh, and I think that's better because this is the type of thing where you don't want to ask a question, a leading question, where you say, you know, should I talk about apple pie on the show, or you know, I, I would like to talk about apple pie. If you don't want me to talk about apple pie, you know, send me email because then you just get the <laughs> negatives. It needs to be like, 
a yes no vote on the thing I'm going to suggest, and then everybody, whether you want it or not, should participate, and then we'll see what the outcome is. So maybe we'll save that for next week. I like it. I like it. I approve. I think it's a great plan. It's an unintentional teaser. That's what I call that. And it's the, the topic is not apple pie, nor is it pasta. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. All right. So is that it? That's it. It's button it up. Okay. People can follow John Syracusa just at Syracusa on Twitter. And that is spelled S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. We really appreciate you guys listening to this show. You can see all of the show notes that uh, we've collected for you. They await you at 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 75. And all, they'll all be there. And, of course, all of the episodes that we've ever recorded are available to you in that same location, 5x5.tv slash hypercritical. There is a little contact John and Dan link that'll take you to the page where you can send email. And uh, I will be deploying that fix so that uh, John will not get things marked as private when they are actually public later tomorrow morning, very early. So this is what I do at 5 in the morning on Saturday. Let's deploy the site. And that's it. That's all we've got for you. But we appreciate you listening. Appreciate you helping uh, helping the show by leaving positive reviews and ratings in the iTunes store. It's the best way to let people find out about the show who don't already know about it. Have a great week, John. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dan. Mm-hmm.